Welcome to the Andy Griffin Show. Wake up! With your chance to sound off, give your opinion, and tell us your thoughts. It's on. It's now. It's here. It's the Andy Griffin Show on News Radio 890. 92.5. KDXU, Southern Utah's News Talk Leader. Welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing today? It's Monday. Hope your weekend was grandiose. You had something fun going on. I, I was in a parade center. That was kind of fun. But uh, other than that, nothing too exciting. The usual uh, uh, hanging out with the family. Uh, glad to be here. Monday, Monday you know, Carol, uh, let's see, Karen Carpenter once said, rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Mondays don't get me down. I'm pretty excited. Love my job. Love talking to you folks every single day. And I'm glad, again, to be in the air chair. And uh, given my recent health issues, I'm glad to be alive. And, and uh, you know, I'm glad to be anywhere. Right? What is it somebody once said? It's better to be seen than viewed. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Uh, it's 10 minutes after 9 o'clock on a Monday and uh, the first Monday of the month. And I have a, an author on the program with me. Uh, his name is Spencer L. Anderson. He's a former pilot, retired Air Force Vietnam veteran, and honorary CAF uh, colonel whose passion for aviation is seen clearly in his writing. He's an outspoken advocate of general aviation and an aviation history enthusiast. He lives right here in Utah's Dixie with his beautiful wife, Carol. Let me welcome Spencer to the show. Spencer, thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here, Andy. How are you? I'm doing great. So glad you're here. And, uh, you know, it's uh, you and I actually met, uh, what, about a little a week and a half ago or something at the county fair. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. This guy's from here and he's writing books and stuff. I thought, let's get him on the radio and son of a gun if we didn't make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I met you at the Washington County Fair. That was a great event. We had uh, some pretty decent book sales going on there. We were very mm-hmm. happy about it. Tell us a little bit about who you are and your history. Uh, now, you uh, you served in the Air Force for a time, and then you became an educator a- after that. Tell us kind of about uh, where you come from, Spencer, but how all this happened. Well, born and raised in uh, Salt Lake uh, at the, uh, the old St. Mark's Hospital up there in Salt Lake. Then we moved to uh, Provo and Orem, where we lived until I was 12, and then we moved back up to Salt Lake, where I attended high school at Granger High School. Granger High, all right. You were a Lancer, huh? West Valley City, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yep, native-born Utah here. After high high school, uh, where did you go? I went straight into the Air Force, Andy. I Mm -hmm. uh, enlisted in the Air Force in uh, June of 62, Back before maybe your parents were born, but uh, <laughs> well, b- before I was um, born, but not my parents. Uh, yeah, and I uh, I went uh, traveled around the world and saw a lot of different places, and I mustered out of the Air Force in uh, in uh, uh, 1970 because of uh, a head injury that I sustained, Ooh. and uh, it uh, got me a medical discharge, and so I decided to go ahead and go on and get my master's degree in education, and I taught elementary school for 12 years and was a middle school counselor for the next 18 years. Wow. So uh, deeply entrenched in the uh, education uh, uh, field. Uh, What grade did you teach? How old were the kids you were teaching? Well, I started with the third graders. Uh, That would be uh, eight, nine-year-old, and then uh, worked uh, on up to uh, the oldest kids that I taught at that time with the uh, fifth, sixth grade split, uh, 10 and 11 years old. 
You must, and you, then uh, moved over to middle school counseling, uh, counseling and uh, ran the department there at Benyon Junior High School. You must have the patience of, of Joe. <laughs> uh, well, those youngsters, uh, uh, it's, uh, they, are in, they are in need of uh, some stability in school. School's uh, a, a difficult experience for kids. Uh, so uh, they, they need all the love and kindness and support they can get. True, true, especially when you consider what's happened the last couple of years with school being canceled and going online and kids wearing masks. And I I have a real uh, soft spot in my heart for school teachers and counselors and those that uh, uh, volunteer and spend their time uh, uh, taking care of the kids. My dad was an educator for, well, three three decades, more than three decades. And so, yeah, I've got a soft spot in my heart for, for them. Uh, all right, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you became an author. At what point, after having served in the Air Force and, and having been an educator a while, at what point did you decide, you know, I think I might have a book or two in me? Well, you know, I've always had a, a story running through my head that comes from telling my third graders uh, uh, fanciful stories. Uh, one day a week, we spent a, a half an hour doing that. But uh, I've always had a story running around in my head, and my exposure to uh, the Air Force and then later to the old warbirds kind of got me onto the idea that, hey, I can still teach and write books at the same time. And so uh, my idea is that uh, by writing uh uh, the stories about the old uh, warbirds uh, back from the World War II era and applying those uh, lessons learned to today's world, maybe we can uh, raise the awareness of some uh, younger people uh, coming up in the world and uh, in the uh, all-volunteer military age that we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, back when I was uh, growing up and getting out of high school, uh, Vietnam was uh, starting to come on, and we still had the draft. But, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in the old saying that uh, if you don't learn your history, you're bound to repeat it. And yeah. I, want, uh, I want this generation of young people growing up to uh, really feel what Americans did back in the early 40s uh, in World War II and the sacrifices and the commitment they made. It's Maybe a, there's a lesson in there. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting conundrum, Spencer, because we don't want war, obviously. War is hell. War is worse than hell, some people will say. And we don't want our young people to, our, you know, as, as Sean Hanley likes to say, our greatest treasure is our young people. We don't want them to have to experience uh, that kind of trauma. But at the same time, War did a lot for our country and for our youth in understanding that, like you said, sacrifice have, sacrifices had to be made. Uh, people had to give of themselves, both uh, literally and, and figuratively, in order for us to, to come out ahead. Exactly right. And, the, uh, you know, when war is kind of an overwhelming thing, and it's, it's, it's what's up front in the news all the time. And we don't think about the uh, the civilians uh, back uh, home and in the homes and the apartments and the going to work every day and these are the people who are risking the lives of their sons, their fathers, their husbands, sending them to war while they have to keep the home fires burning and that was a difficult task, especially toward the end of the depression era. We were coming out of it just as the World War II was starting. And uh, you've heard of Molly Riveter, I think. Sure. Uh, Molly Riveter was a, a, a fictional character created uh, for the purpose of letting people know that the women out there in the world uh, were taking a lot of the, the men's heavy lifting jobs 
to keep uh, our industrial complex going, and they were working uh, jobs traditionally held by men that were uh, very demanding jobs. And uh, I think uh, our industrial complex would have ground to a halt if it hadn't been for the women back in the day doing that. Yeah, I think the whole country learned that... uh you know, everybody had to pitch in. You couldn't. You couldn't just sit idly by as as uh, these things happen. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your books. Now, you mentioned just for a moment that one of the purposes that you write these books is to help people, young people in particular, but all people understand what had to happen for us to to be successful as a country. Uh, has that? Do you see that as a problem right now? Do you see a lot of young people? Going, yeah, I don't, I don't care about Vietnam. I don't care about World War II. That's ancient history. I do, I do consider that to be a problem. We live uh, now. We don't have the draft. We have an all voluntary service, and uh, you certainly don't enlist in the military to to make uh, six uh, figure incomes. <laughs> so, so, uh, so yes, it requires a sense of duty, a sense of uh, patriotism, a sense of uh, honor. And a desire to uh, to to serve, uh, and a, a desire to sacrifice whatever is necessary to sacrifice to keep our republic working. Now you just... and I don't know that that's being taught to kids in the schools these days. And yeah. I think that through through reading and through novels like mine, and, and with the genre of historical fiction, it's an interesting way of teaching some of these historical. Uh, uh, messages and and events and of teaching kids that, yes, indeed, war is an insult to the soul. But Mm. war is inevitable. It's going to happen as long as man is on the earth. And so if we're called upon to do our duty, we have to ask ourselves, don't we? What is it that I am supporting? What, why, why am I doing this? Uh, Honor towards what, Mm. Uh, you know, nation, uh, family, church uh, of course and uh but uh if 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 this next generation is not taught these values then we're missing out we're not doing what we need to do to maintain our democratic republic because nobody wants to make that sacrifice so um yeah i think that there's a message there that they can learn these kinds of uh of personal character traits of uh honor service uh, so forth, but uh, through through pleasant reading, they don't have to get into a dry old textbook, but they can learn some of those values through uh, good, wholesome reading, and uh, and for families, and that's why I write for families. I I don't put in any. Uh, uh, can I say f bombs over the yeah, over the air? Sure, uh, yeah, okay. I understand. <laughs> uh, none of that, none of none of that stuff, and it's uh, it's it's good uh, good reading, and we have great success at the air shows around the western United States and the southern states, and uh, in advertising our uh, our 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 wares, our books uh, at the air shows that we go to. I'm I'm curious, have you uh, developed a relationship with the Warbird Museum out here at the St. George Airport? Sure do. Uh, we uh, so Western Sky. If you've never been out there, Western Sky Aviation Warbird Museum. Yeah, uh, they do actually have a, a show coming up on May seventeenth through the twenty third, and they're the CAF, the Commemorative Air Force, uh, is going to fly a couple of warbirds in to celebrate the twenty twenty two Armed Forces Day celebration, and uh, we're we're honoring the. Um, 
uh, Desert Storm veterans there on Tuesday. And we'll have the opportunity to uh, take a look at and do a walk around of a B-25 Billy Mitchell and a B-17G model Flying Fortress. Oh, that is so cool. I, I, I went last time they had it, and it's been a couple of years now because of COVID and everything. But last time they had it, I took my dad out and... Uh, I was I, I was impressed with a lot of things about those planes, but uh, maybe most impressed with the tail gunner, the little teeny compartment that a guy has to squish into and then quite literally be exposed to the enemy uh, from that tail gunner position. And uh, just fascinating stuff. For, uh, maybe I'm getting old, but I love that kind of stuff. It's awesome. Oh, I do too. You know, and uh, you've you've heard the phrase, I'm sure. Watch your six. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Where that comes from. That's mm-hmm. where that comes from. The enemy's dropping down at your six o'clock position, which is coming right up your tail uh, section, right up the empennage, right where that tail gunner is sitting. Yeah, and they are the first to take fire and return fire, and that's. Uh, it's really nice while you're flying up there at 20,000 feet and there's, uh, you know, you don't get any uh, flat puffs of smoke and you don't get any enemy uh, planes coming at you. So much for the view, though, when it comes time to do your job. Yeah, yeah, and, it, it, it gets uh, so. considerably a little bit messier at that point and you're so exposed. I just, I mean, yes, you have guns with you, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the, the enemy, as he comes up from behind, his number one goal is to get rid of that tail gunner and... Ay, ay, ay. So, uh, well, you know, the, uh, these air shows are important to us, too, uh, in terms of what we do. Uh, we're going to, of course, be having our, uh, our, booth, uh, our booth there at the uh, Western Sky Museum Air Show. And we'll be there on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Even though the air show runs Tuesday through Sunday, uh, we'll be there on, uh, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And hopefully you'll come by and uh, take a look at our books, and uh, and I'd love to have a chat with you. And yeah. uh, and, uh, and I'm just <laughs> I'm enjoying this chat we're having right now too. But uh, give me give us a chance to meet you, and you can meet us. And uh, yeah, I'll hang so, around for sure. Hey, I, hang around, yeah, have fun. I uh, I have developed I've become good friends with Jack Hunter, Colonel Hunter out there at the uh, West the Warbird Western Sky Warbird Air Museum. Uh, he keeps threatening to get me up in one of those Chinese MIGs, and I told him I said, Jack, I'm six foot five and I weigh 340 pounds. You really believe that I belong in a Chinese airplane? And uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, a red Chinese MIG 17, yeah, uh, short, stubby, smoke burner. Uh, Wow. What a thrill ride. You'd have to probably cut my legs off to get me in that thing, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if if they've got that set up for a passenger in the back. I think they do. Yeah, I think but, so. Uh, yeah, you're right. That's that's for uh, the oh, back in the day, back in World War II, they had a height uh, limitation for uh, for young men and women who applied for uh, flying the small fighter planes. And if you were over about uh, five, uh, I think five ten was about the uh, the tallest you could be. And then mm. if you were taller than that, you ended up flying something like the B-17s, the b 25 and so forth. So, or, or you're work, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah or, you're or, well over six feet. Either that or working ground crew, I suppose. All right, let's talk about your writing career, Spencer. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, you started writing. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because I'm a writer, but I've never been published in the novel form. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I've been writing journalism. I've been published in magazines and newspapers all over, all over the country, but uh, I've never written a book. What? 
What did you do to get really like sink your teeth into it? What was the what was the method you used? Did you quit your job and just start writing, or did you write while you were working? Did you set aside a day of the week? How did you do it? Well, I retired in two thousand and four, and I didn't start writing until uh, two thousand five. Really, okay, uh, with a lot of support from my wife Carol, uh, I got into it uh, after retirement. And uh, to answer your question, there's a, a little bit of difference between writing a, an all-out novel of 300 or 400 pages and right. writing, uh, you know, shorter pieces. And it, it, also, it starts the same way painting on a canvas starts. Mm-hmm. You, 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 uh, you block it out first and just get the rough idea first, and then you, you add color to it with uh, scene supports and character development and... And pretty soon you're well on your way towards a, a novel. You know, there's, there's a lot of research done. I think I probably spend as much time researching a novel just to get the historical part of the, uh, of the, of the piece working hmm. as, as I do the actual writing process. So if, if it's, it requires a lot of patience. It's not something a person can do overnight. Maybe Stephen King can. I don't know. Uh, he, I, I, I think he could probably write about a half a dozen books a year, but it takes me the better part of a year to write one uh, the, of, the, of the kind that I'm writing. So do you, when you start a book, do you kind of outline it first? And like you said, you put all the elements together so you know what the book's going to be about, and then it's a matter of filling in the details? Yes, exactly. It's uh, I, I build a storyboard on my whiteboard in my office, and uh, we uh, start with uh, uh, roughing out the uh, the, the storyline and, and writing down the characters, and uh, uh, and we just uh, build from there. Uh, we we do plot lines, and you can use uh, different colors of uh, of whiteboard uh, pen if you like to uh, to delineate the different aspects of the book, like. Uh, Plot lines, subplot lines, characters, mm-hmm. uh, background, backstories, and so forth. But that's what you do is uh, is you uh, is you write that storyboard and then you follow it. And uh, not to say that you can't change it down the road a little bit as new ideas come into your head. But uh, you've got to have an outline format like that in order to make sense and 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 to maintain continuity with your main characters and and the action sequences. One of my uh, one of my favorite authors, Spencer, is uh, Clive Cussler. I don't know if you've read any of Clive Cussler stuff, but uh, a great artist. And uh, I remember they tried to, they made a movie out of one of his books called Sahara. This is maybe fifteen yeah. years ago, yeah. and uh, yeah. Cussler actually got so mad because they gutted his characters and they gutted his plot line. Uh, by the time the movie was made, he was no longer endorsing the movie. He was he was pretty mad at at the movie makers. I'm curious, and of Absolutely. course, everybody everybody would love to have their book become a movie. But if if a movie maker came along and said, "Well, we want to use your book, but we're going to just kind of use the general idea," would you be okay with that, or would that really bother you? You know, I've struggled with that issue. I I, I think sometimes that I'm selling myself out by saying, yeah, I'll do whatever you want to do to make the movie, and you can make whatever changes you want. And then at the same time, I think, well, hey, if my story is worth even talking to me about a movie, then, yeah, I'd like you to stick <laughs> to the storyline and the characters. Yeah. and. Uh, you know, so I'm willing to share the the, the credit, you know, but... Uh, um, the last Raider, the, the first, you know, just to uh, illustrate the point, 
The Last Raider, I, the very first reviews I, I received on that one uh, compared me favorably to Clive Kuzler as well as Tom Clancy. Uh, uh, I don't get quite into the techno thriller aspect that Tom does or did. Yeah. But uh, but but yeah, and we had repeated comments from our readers that hey, the last Raider was such a great book, I couldn't put it down. It needs to be a movie. It does. <laughs> well, I have yet to uh, have anybody knocking at my door from the studios, but uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll probably be like uh, a dead artist that uh, <laughs> obtains fame after yeah. they're in the ground, but. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the fame and fame and fortune is is not what I'm after. Really, it's uh, just uh, using my imagination in an orderly way and sharing what I love doing uh, with uh, with folks out there that uh, that like that genre of uh, of book. But yes. Uh, Making a movie, you always hear the comment, don't you, that, oh, the movie can't compare to the book. Right, the book right. is always better than the movie. Well, <laughs> that's true. That, yeah. That's true. It's more but time. But then you can't, have, yeah. you can't have a six-hour movie either. No. So, you know, there, <laughs> there's got to be some some cutting going on somewhere. But, uh, yeah, I do, I do think that the, uh, the movie studios get a little bit carried away with uh, taking control of those kinds of things. We're talking with Spencer Anderson, a local author. The website is warbirdtales.com, or you can also go to spencerandersonauthor.com. Either one of those will get you to uh, to where uh, he needs to go. Spencer, are you okay to, to stay on the show a little bit longer? I wanted to talk about those. We haven't really spent much time talking about the actual books yet. Do you have a couple more minutes? Oh, sure. You All bet. right, so we've got to get a commercial break in, and we'll check the weather. We'll be back with more from Spencer Anderson after this quick break. This is Mark Levin, and you're listening to The Andy Griffin Show on News Radio 890, 92.5 KDXU. Stay tuned to KDXU for my show at 6 p.m. today. Welcome back. I'm Andy Griffin. Thank you for tuning in today. Thanks for the intro there, Mark. And uh, Spencer Anderson is with me today. Spencer, uh, local author, turned up the wrong thing. Spencer, you there? Yes, I'm here. All right, good. Thank you for uh, being here. Uh, you told me uh, just a little while ago you actually went to a broadcasting school a few years back. Uh, that's kind of cool. You, so d- were you ever on air? Were you ever a disc jockey? Uh, yeah, well, as a matter of fact, I was back in the, excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, getting a little dry throat sitting here. Uh, anyway, yeah, I, I attended the Columbia School of Broadcasting in uh, Hollywood. Wow. And I, gee, I, I even walked over the faces of all those nice, beautiful stars on uh, on on the Star Walk, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and got to, yeah. I think I I think I stepped on Marilyn Monroe's face once, <laughs> but uh, that wasn't very going, nice going into the studios. But yeah, yeah, that was that was uh, one of the highlights toward the end of my Air Force career. I was uh, stationed in El Segundo, California, at the time at the uh, Air Force Space and Missile Systems. Uh, organization and uh, uh, I thought, well, golly, I'm getting out of the Air Force here in a, in a, in a couple, two or three months, and I I need to do something to work my way through college. So I decided to go to broadcasting school, and uh, that's what I did. Very cool, very cool. Uh, again, the website Warbird Tales T A L E S WarbirdTales dot com or SpencerAndersonAuthor dot com. Uh, Spencer, who is Carl Bridger? Tell us about him. 
Carl Bridger is the son of a Montana rancher from Cascade, Montana, uh, the Double B Cattle Ranch. And he grew up in, uh, in Cascade and uh, fell in love with his uh, elementary school sweetheart. Nice. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, her name was Annie. And uh, when the war broke out, uh, he had already learned how to fly from a, uh, a biplane mail, airmail uh, pilot who, uh, whose route included a stop off at Helena and then Cascade and then on to uh, Great Falls. And he kind of uh, took a liking to Carl, our boy, and he, uh, Carl said, well, gee, can you teach me how to fly that biplane? It was an old tiger moth. And uh, Carl said, well, sure. Uh, or uh, uh, his friend uh, said, sure, I'll, I'll teach you how to fly, uh, Carl. And uh, so he did. And from that, uh, Carl, as he grew up and graduated from high school, we got fully involved in the war. And uh, he decided he was going to enlist. And uh, about two years later, became a pilot of a B-25 Mitchell flying in the South China Sea and uh in the Battle of the Bismarck Sea uh, out of the Philippine Islands. And uh, that's how he got his start. And he worked his way up through there, and then he went to work for the CIA at the end of the war when the CIA was created in 1947 uh, with the same stroke of the pen of uh, that created the United States Air Force as a separate branch of the military, uh, signed into law by Harry Truman in 1947. And uh, so Carl went to work for the CIA, did a little spy craft, and as his cover job, he was uh, an aircraft design engineer for Kelly Johnson and the Skunk Works of Lockheed. And that was his cover story while he was, uh, his job was to, uh, was to apprehend, identify and apprehend uh, industrial spies from the Soviet Union. Wow. One spy in particular, and this is the historical part, one spy in particular, his code name was Attic. Now, Attic's real name was Peter Semyonovich, uh, a Soviet spy. He was quite a prolific spy, too. He never did bring him to justice. But uh, in my later book, uh, uh, and, and that was uh, Mission Critical, the third in the series in the trilogy that I wrote, mm-hmm. uh, Carl actually brings uh, Attic to justice. Not only that, but he turns him into a double agent. Nice. So uh, uh, anyway, but that's that's the thing. He retires uh, after he leaves the CIA. Uh, his father passes, and so he retires back to the ranch in Cascade, going full circle, where he uh, uh, sets himself to the task of operating a, a, a twenty-five thousand acre uh, cattle ranch. But he also uh, wants to build an old B twenty-five of the type that he flew in World War Two. So he finds an old wreck of a B-25. He learns about it from uh, his CIA connections, and he brings this old hulk of a B-25 back to the ranch, uh, and he rebuilds it. Over the next 12 years, it's finally ready to go, and he's in his early 70s now. He's a grandfather with a grandson that's uh, a Navy pilot. But all, all Carl wants to do is to fly his B-25 to air shows around the country, <laughs> like the one coming up at the Western Sky Museum. And he thinks he's finished with all the uh, spy craft and the, and the war, but he's not. 
I'll leave that open for you. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Car- Carl Bridger Trilogy is is uh, kind of the title of the series that Spencer has written. The first book is called The Last Raider. You talked a little bit about uh, setting that one up. Book number two is called Avenging Angel, a pilot story. And book three is called Mission Critical, uh, all of that part of the Carl Bridger Trilogy, written by Spencer here, who's with me today. Uh, I wanted to talk for just a couple of minutes. We don't have a lot of time left, Spencer, but I wanted to talk a little bit about this new project of yours, I guess we'll call it that, a novel for younger readers called The Secret of Moaning Cave. You kind of uh, diverge from your usual path and your military background and, and talk about something a little bit different for a little, di- little bit different audience. Well, yeah, I, I, I think I may have tra- I channeled C.S. Lewis with this one, but uh, <laughs> if you're, this uh, this is a, a piece that I wrote for uh, my young readers, and it's uh, about uh, three teenagers growing up in uh, really a community not too far from here, Flagstaff, Arizona. Yeah, and uh, they're they're just out of the seventh grade, going on uh, summer break, and they go. Uh, hiking and spelumping up around the San Francisco Caldera area in the Coconino National Forest, uh, which is down down there in the, uh, I think it's probably being burned out about now in Flagstaff. Yeah, I was going to say, they got a big uh, fire going, don't they? They they go into a cave, and then they are beckoned uh, to follow a beautiful young woman whose image is floating above the uh, grotto of water, and the cave uh, wall melts away, and they find themselves in this fantastic world of talking bears and flying horses and dragons and elves and the whole the whole shtick. And uh, of course, like C.S. Uh, C.S. Lewis, there is a um, strong moral message in there. And again, it's about uh, camaraderie. It's about trust, faith, and hope, and uh, sacrifice and service. It's a uh, uh, a theme that runs throughout all the books that I write, but this is a fun little thing just for my young readers. I've even had some adult readers uh, come back and comment that they really enjoyed that book, The yeah. Secret of Morning Cave. Sounds like a good read. You know, one of the secrets, I think, that you have to walk that fine line. You want to get the message in there. You want to kind of have a good moral, up, uplifting feel to your stories, but they can't be, I mean, the, the, the curse is if you were to make them boring. And so uh, you've, you've managed to find a way. Uh, you don't want them to be boring, but you want them to send a message. I like that, Spencer. Exactly. You've, you've got it right there. And I, I think kids, if, if I, and, you know, I, I had a 30-year career in public education, but frankly, I did not go to school all those years for the excitement of it. Yeah. And uh, as, 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 so um, I, want, I want to entertain kids and open up the, uh, their imaginations to the possibilities of what can be in their lives. Now, how did you and Carol end up in southern Utah? What made you decide to settle here? Well, we uh, we lived up in uh, Utah Valley, up in a small community called Cedar Hills, just north of Orem and Provo. Mm-hmm. And uh, my uh, physical condition got worse, and I had a couple of serious uh, slip and falls on the ice. Oh. And so in 2014, we decided to move down to Dixie, a decision I wish we had made earlier, because I love it down here. Yeah, <laughs> Not a lot of ice to worry about either. That was the case. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, there's not. I, I did a, a face plant in Walmart up there in Cedar Hills, and I thought, okay, it's time for me to go. <laughs> so we, we moved down here in June of 2014, and we love this place down here. It really, truly is Dixie. Well, I appreciate you coming here. Are, are you still able to fly, or is that kind of a, a history for you? 
No, that was uh, that's history for me. I got my uh, pilot's license in 2007 and gave it up the same year. Oh, okay. When the FAA ground me because of uh, some medication, new medication that uh, uh, I had to go on. So uh, that uh, they grounded me. <laughs> so uh, there, there you have it. I get to write about all the things now that I would love to have done. Yeah. Awesome. Well, he's Spencer L. Anderson, author of the website warbirdtales.com. You can also go to spencerandersonauthor.com. has information on how to get the books. I assume you're on Amazon as well, if I wanted to look there. Yes, we're on Amazon Kindle, and also we are on Audible, for those of you who uh, uh, like to listen to a good story, but uh, all of the books except Mission... yeah. Oh, well, Morning Cave is not on uh, Audible, and neither is Mission Critical. But uh, The Last Raider and uh, Avenging um, Angel and Avenging Angel are on audio through Audible. There's a link on our website, uh, www.warbirdtales.com, and you can access all of those uh, book sources. Spencer, thank you so much for spending a few minutes this morning on the Andy Griffin Show, and I wish you the best. Keep selling those books. I love books that are fun to read but also make you feel good. Well, thank you, Andy, and I hope you read yours as well, and uh, I'll be looking forward to what I hope will be a positive review from you. Yeah, and and, and we'll see you at the air show for sure out there at the Warbird Museum. You've got a partner. All right, Thank take you care. Much. Spencer Anderson on the Andy Griffin Show. Uh, yeah, met him at the fair. Had a really nice pile of books he was selling and just talking about uh, his Warbird Tales. I love it. Warbirdtales.com is the website. SpencerAndersonAuthor.com uh, will also direct you to the exact same place. Uh, the trilogy is uh, the uh, Carl Bridger trilogy the last raider avenging angel of pilot story and mission critical and then he's got that new youth book out and uh, i'm not too old to read youth books i'll read the secret of moaning cave all right we'll take a break when we come back more on the andy griffin show i want to tell you a little bit about a conversation i had with a young person just the other day we'll be right back 9.50 on KDXU. This is the Andy Griffin Show. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks again to the author Spencer Anderson, the Warbird Trilogy, Warbird Tales. Very cool stuff. I like Warbird Tales. Uh, all right, we've got a few minutes left. Let's let Seth have a moment. Seth, what's going on? In your opinion, mm-hmm. what are the most effective and world-changing war- warbirds that you know of. Oh, boy. Uh, You know, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the Flying Fortress was huge in in World War II. Um, I think the advent of the jet in, you know, really toward the end of World War uh, War War II, but uh, really in the Vietnam War, the advent of the jet was a game changer as well. How about you, Seth? What do you think? Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yeah. Those are the planes that delivered and ended the war mm. that may have cost millions of lives of U.S. soldiers. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Uh, I don't know that Japan was ever going to surrender unless unless we did something drastic like that. Well, Dr. William Mount, I've mentioned him many times, ambassador. I think he holds a, a, an equivalency rank of a three-star general. And he indicated on a recent broadcast that the United States did not have the capability of uh, dropping from an airplane atomic weapons because of the 
of the concussion, the flash, and everything else that goes along with that. To be a that suicide mission. The day could not outrun the blast. Yeah. So he's claiming that both of those weapons were brought in by other means, ship or whatever, placed in place, and then detonated um, remotely. Really? Hmm. Now, what do you think? I wish there were somebody who had the ability, and I don't, to research that, and we start to begin to understand the truth about our history, whatever it may be, if it's those pilots and those airplanes, uh, kudos. If it was another system, please share with us uh, truth and reality so that 50, 60, 100 years later, we still don't know what happened. Uh, you know what they say, history is always written by the victors, and, and at this point we have to <laughs> take their word for it. But that's an interesting take, that the bombs were actually not flown in and dropped, but rather placed there and then detonated. Hmm. And that they're doing that today, you know, I think they have the ability to put these anywhere they choose without missiles, without anything going on from the air. They're in place, they're maintained, and at will somebody, the evil forces, I consider them, detonate them at will. So, uh, Seth, how old are you again? Do you mind me asking? Coming up on 80. Coming up on 80. So you would have been uh, just a, a child, huh? a very small child, when, when this happened. Well, my father was serving in the military as a combat engineer, and uh, I have photographs and stuff uh, that my mother sent while he was in combat hmm. of me. <laughs> There's a mistake. It broke the camera. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's an interesting concept. And thank you for the call today. I appreciate it. Seth. It's good to talk to thank you. you. Uh, well, I, I mean, like I said, history is written by the victors. That's why we get one side of, of you know, a lot of issues. But uh, I, 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 th- <laughs> Uh, how do you feel about government now? Do you trust government? <laughs> well, no, I don't trust the government. Well, did you trust the government in 1945 or 1955 or 1965? When when did trusting government become something that we didn't do? Great question. I did want to finish on, on this thought. I had a, a conversation with a young person. I'm not going to say who it was or, or anything like that, but uh, it was an interesting conversation because uh, this person was raised in a very conservative household, went off to college, pretty conservative college if there is such a thing. And uh, But the conversation the other day was uh, basically this person said, everyone deserves to eat. Everyone has a right to eat. And I was like, well, Okay, we don't want people starving. That's true. But if if a person is unable to work, unable to make money, to get money to eat, maybe they've got a mental problem. Maybe they've got physical care, uh, uh, limitations. Um, do they deserve to eat? Well, yeah, they of course they deserve to eat. Can they earn their own food? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But that wasn't the argument. The argument was, uh, what about the person who squanders their life, who uh, 
doesn't work, even though they are able-bodied, chooses instead to, I don't know, stay home and watch TV or play games or uh, get drunk every day or, or whatever, does that person, do we have a, re- a moral responsibility, you and I, to make sure that person has enough food to uh, survive? And my contention is no. We have no more. If if they won't own up to who they are and what, if they won't take care of themselves, why do I have to take care of them? And, you know, you can get into the semantics about, well, what is taking care of and then what is the ability. To, and, and my thought was, well, no, I, I don't want to get into all that. I just want to know if that person screws around, wastes their money, wastes their time. And then, oh, by the way, I haven't had a meal today. Is it my job then to give that person 20 bucks or give them taxes uh, and, and welfare so that they can have a meal? Even though I worked 10 hours that day, came home exhausted, uh, missed, didn't get to hang out with my family, didn't get to play the video games or watch the TV or whatever it is they did all day long. Uh, I was at work. Why, why do I, why is it up to me to take care of them? And uh, this person brought in religious, uh, you know, talked about Jesus and, and brought in religious thoughts and said, basically, well, Jesus would have fed them. And my contention is, I don't think he would have. I, I think, you know, we, we talk about religion and theology and Jesus Christ and I think a lot of people get the wrong idea. He was the ultimate kind person. He was the ultimate uh, person who helped those who were downtrodden. He healed the sick. He he uh, healed the lame. He you know so they could walk again. He he brought people back to life. But he wasn't milk toast. He wasn't a guy that let everything slide. He said, "Go and sin no more." He didn't say. Ah, uh, your sins, it's okay if you're sinning. No big deal. I, I don't mind. He never said that. He said, change who you are. He told the rich guy to give all his money to the poor. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't given free passes. He was saying, look, do what you can. Go as far as you can. Put the effort in. And then I will help you. And if you don't do your part, if you don't put the effort in, then you haven't earned my grace. You haven't earned what I've done for you. And there are people, even religious people, who think I'm up in the night, that I'm dead wrong on this issue. But I firmly believe that we have to do our part, that we've got to put the effort in. And so, no, that person that won't go to work, that doesn't try, that looks for a handout, that won't put an effort in. No, they don't deserve to eat. They didn't earn it. And I think that's actually Christ-like, not anti-Christ-like. 